0: Hi, my name is Nori, and you're listening to the Tell Your Story segment of the SoCon podcast, where we share our personal stories of overcoming challenges and hardships. The goal of this segment is to encourage, uplift, and inspire anyone going through anything to keep fighting. To remind you that the journey that God has you on is unique but relatable, and it's okay to feel in the process of growth, trial, and triumph. The Tell Your Story segment of the SoCon podcast is a safe space to be real, authentic, and honest about your journey. Our hope is that you are inspired by the different stories that you hear and that they help you to feel less alone in the battle to live a life that pleases God. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy. Okay, I'm back. It's great to be here. It's great to be back in the pulpit again. I wasn't sure if I still had a job, but apparently I do because I'm here. So that's a good, that's always a good thing. No, I'm just kidding. We were, uh, we were down in Georgia uh, to visit with uh, our kids and, uh, and the, the little varmints that they've uh, produced. And, uh, <laughs> but we did have a great time. The girls are doing great. Naomi is uh, about to be five going to school. Frances is two, running around talking. She knows who I am for the. First time, I think, which is a good thing. And uh, we had a wonderful time with them, Jonathan and Hannah, uh, Fiona, all of them. So, But we're back. We're glad to be back. And I'm excited to be able to share some things with you today. We're going to launch into a new series today. As you know, I don't need this, do I? Why am I talking into this? Okay. shows you how out of practice I am. Uh, as you know, we've been doing a, three week se- a set of three-week series on various topics that have to do with, with how Jesus redefined our relationship with God. And the, the, the fresh uh, outlook that Jesus had on things, and so we've we've covered quite a bit of ground so far. Uh, we've looked at two aspects uh, uh, that Jesus worked with. Uh, one was uh, refining or re- um, redefining our lordship. The other was redefining our worship. Uh, Pat did a great job in the last series talking about lordship and how that relates to worship to uh, to uh, our devotion to God. Uh, which was great. We, prior to that, we talked about worship and how Jesus redefined worship and what it means to really worship God. Next month, Joel will be doing a series. Yes, amen. Joel always does a great job. Joel is like the really all heart kind of preacher. And he's going to be talking about how Jesus redefined commitment through discipleship and what it really means to walk. You know, Jesus uh, says that uh, we should walk as he did. John said, whoever claims to live in him must walk As Jesus did. So Joel is going to walk us through what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus and and how Jesus uh, viewed that as being a fresh outlook on commitment. So that's going to be great. But for the next three weeks, we're going to be taking a look at how Jesus reshaped and redefined our connection with God. And connection with God is everything because if we're not connected with God then we have no relationship with God. If you're not connected to your husband or your wife or your kids, you really have no relationship with them. So we're going to be taking a look at this connection with God, both as individuals, but we're also going to take a look at how corporately, collectively we connect with God. What God really wants from us, expects from us and doesn't expect from us as individuals and as a body. So Today, we're going to take a look at God's redefined covenant. God's redefined covenant. So what is a covenant? It sounds like one of those words that we only use in church. And for the most part, that's probably true. But we all know what it feels like to be in a covenant. Because a covenant is an agreement. You experience it every day. You're probably in several agreements right now. If you have a job, which I assume probably most of you do, you probably have a covenant agreement with your employer. Perhaps you have a contract that says, you do this and we will provide you with this. So you have that covenant agreement, you have that contract. It's an agreement between two parties. When you make a large purchase, let's say a home, you go into contract. You draft up all the papers. You make sure that, hey, here's what the seller wants, here's what the buyer wants, and then the lawyers kind of go back and forth to make sure that everything is just as it should be. The buyer gets what they expected, the seller gets what they expected, nothing is left for chance. So that's why we have covenant agreements. We have contracts, even in a marriage, there are contractual agreements. Now, in the church, it's much more spiritually based. But we talk about what the expectations are. Hey, you know, here's what a husband should be. Here's what a wife should be. We, we discuss those things. We talk about those things. And then when everybody agrees, yes, this is what we want, then we, we go through with the marriage. So covenant agreements happen every single day of our lives. This agreement is dependent on conditions that we mutually agree to. If either party violates those conditions, then that covenant agreement or that contract would be be considered void. You can do away with it. Now, in most cases, in the Bible, this word for covenant is sunthiki. Parties are on equal terms. You can bargain back and forth. You can negotiate the terms. And this would have been a very common thing, perhaps with buying and selling trade, whether it be livestock or or dry goods or whatever it might be. There would be this going back and forth, and then you would agree, this have We have an agreement. We've come to a covenant agreement on this. But that doesn't work with God. We don't go to God and say, look, I'm going to work out the relationship with you, God. So first off, let me tell you my terms. Here's everything I want. And here's everything I don't want. So listen carefully, God, because I'm going to detail my part of this. And God doesn't say, okay, well, I guess if that's what, it doesn't work that way. In God, we don't have a sunthiki. You know what we have? We have a diakathy. It's a little difference. The parties are not equal. So this diakathy is more like, it's more like a will, right? So when you're in somebody's will... You, you hope for the best anyway, right? Sometimes you don't get that, but what you get is what you get. You can't go back and renegotiate the will once, it's, once it's, it's out there and it's done. It's like, okay, you either accept the terms or you walk away. And so this is what we have with God. God has this covenant agreement with us, but he totally set the terms. He says, you abide by my rules or you walk away. I mean, that's just the way God set it up. The parties are not equal. God sets the terms. We either accept it or we have to move on. So why was this covenant even created? Why did God decide I got to have this like formal, you know, uh, arrangement between my people? Why is it there? What's its purpose? We usually talk about two different covenants, right? When we talk about covenant with God, there's an old covenant and there's the new covenant. But what exactly are they? Why are they different? How are they different? And why is that even important? I mean, can't we, just, can't we just follow Jesus as Lord, walk in the presence of God, come to church, and everything's good? Why do we need to talk about this old covenant agreement and that we have this new covenant agreements? Why can't we just praise God that we're, we're here? Well, I guess the short answer is we can. I mean, we can certainly just say, you know, let's not worry about what God did, how God did it, why God did it. Let's just say, amen, great to be here. Peace, peace to you, brother, sister. Let's all, you know, worship God and go home. And, and, you know, perhaps that would work for a lot of people. But I think understanding how we got here and appreciating what we have here and, and, and what God had to do to get us here is probably more apt to keep you here. When you appreciate why you're involved with something, don't you appreciate it more and you more have to stick with it? So that's why I think it's important that we understand what God did then, what God is doing now, and what God is going to be doing as we move forward. It's going to keep us here. So let's go back just a little bit, and then we're going to talk about what we have today. And then I'll explain to you in just a few minutes what we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks. In the Old Testament, God actually made several covenants. God had a a covenant with... Adam and Eve. God made a covenant with Abraham. God made a covenant with David. But the one that is probably most important to us is the Mosaic covenant. It's a, it's a covenant that God made with Moses. Because that really set the terms for what God's family would look like, what God's people would look like all And it's really, is what brings us to where we are today. It's God looking at his people and saying, you know what? I'm gonna create a family out of this ragtag bunch But as any family, there's got to be some rules and there's got to be some some form and some structure to it. Otherwise, it's going to be chaotic. And so this covenant that God made with Moses is really very significant for who we are and where we are today. And we're going to begin by looking in Exodus chapter 24. That's small print. If you can't read it in the back, open your Bible. (laughs) It's always a good thing to do, okay? So we are in Exodus 24, and uh, we're going to begin here in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and you are to worship at a distance. But Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said we will do. I wonder if they really understood what they were saying. Because when you look at the, 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 the volume, and we're going to look at it in a moment, the volume of what was said, that's a mighty bold statement. We'll do it all. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. They had no clue what was coming. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it in the bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we'll do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. You know, shortly after the exodus from Egypt, while on Mount Sinai, God delivers through Moses a written covenant. It was a contract with his people. And it included what we know as the Ten Commandments. And the people agreed to hold on to those things. And if they did, then they would be promised prosperity and protection in the promised land. So, okay, we just have to follow the rules. And when we get to this land flowing with milk and honey, we're all going to be good. We just have to obey everything that God said. Now that seemed like a really good deal considering where they had just come out of, which was horrific. Their enslavement, their captivity in Egypt. So it's like, wow, this is a really good thing. All we have to do is do everything God says and when we get to the land that we're headed to, all is good. We have no more worries. Sounded great. But in the fine print, and you know, in any contract, there's fine print. Usually it's on page 453. <laughs> By then you're done. You're just ready to sign whatever. And But way in the bottom is the fine print. Well, God has some fine print with his covenant agreement, this old covenant with his with his people, because they're in the fine prints. There were laws covering every aspect of their behavior. Literally hundreds of dietary laws, dress codes, social rules, hygiene rules. I mean, it was endless, endless. Why? I mean, why not just say, okay, look, just be good people, don't hurt anybody, worship me, and we're all good. I mean, why, why this, this just endless stream of things to do and not do, don't do, yes, do, don't do, yes, do? Why all this? They were living in a very, very pagan society. And it was, I mean, we think it's bad today. It was bad then. I, I, I don't know. I wasn't there. But I can't say it was any worse than what we have there. But when you read the Bible, you get a sense that it was pretty bad. They were in a very ungodly world. And so God's purpose was to protect them from that which would destroy them. And so if we just give them rules of everything to do and not do, then they'll be safe because they won't be doing the bad things. And hopefully they'll be doing the good things. The problem was there were 613 laws. Now, they didn't have like, you know, size 11 font. So, you know, these were like etched in whatever they were able to etch in. Right? So, I mean, it was just volumes and volumes of laws and regulations that every good Jew was to follow if you were to be obedient with God. So how can you possibly, I mean, basically it's the book of Leviticus, read it through, but how, if you want to, how could you possibly... Hold on to 613 laws. Well, the answer is, you can't. (laughs) You can't. I mean, a lot of these people couldn't even read. How are they going to read 613 laws? I mean, it was insane. So what are we to do? Well, so when he realized that this just isn't going to really work very well, it began this practice of blood sacrifice. To atone for the sins that you were going to make because you weren't going to hold on to the majority of these 613 rules and regulations. So they would bring an animal to the temple. The priest would offer a sacrifice on your behalf. And only the high priest was able to intercede directly with God for the people. You could do none of this on your own. And you had to do this over and over and over Again, it wasn't a one-time thing. I mean, it was just constantly like cycling through what I missed. Okay, you know, try, be- try better for next week. You know, and, I mean, it was just on and on and on. It was miserable. The sins were never done away with. The only thing this system did was make you aware of how bad you were messing up. That was, that was all it did. How discouraging is that? And because of this, you were never really brought into a personal presence with God. God was still way off in a distance someplace. You had all these rules and regulations, but you were never brought into that presence with God. Yep. Make sure oh, there we are. Okay. So how discouraging would that be to, to just endlessly walk through all these procedures and never get to God? Although Through the isolation, you were safe, physically safe, right? So you were isolated from the world, but you were not brought closer to God. So it kind of did some good, but it wasn't the end all. And God knew it. So why did he set it up this way? Did God maybe not know what he was doing? Was God just experimenting? Hmm. We need something. Let's try this. If it doesn't work, you know, oh, well, you know. No, I don't think so. God knew exactly what he was doing. The old covenant was just part of the plan. The old covenant was not the end all. It wasn't the plan itself. It was never intended to be the whole plan. For that, we have to move ahead, and we have to see what God has offered to us, not just through the new covenant, which we all glory in and we're so grateful for, but how that relates to the old covenant, as one continuous plan because God didn't just make a mistake. It's not like there was this total dropping of one to start another. It's not like the new covenant was, you know, God's emergency backup plan B. Oh, man, just in case this doesn't go well, we better have something in the book so we can pull out real quick and, you know, dust off and put in this. It wasn't that way at all. God didn't make a mistake by creating what he created through the old covenant. That was part of the plan. And so don't see what we have now in the new covenant as being, you know, God's emergency replacement, but see it more more as a continuing through one into another. And since God didn't make a mistake or fall asleep at the wheel in the Old Testament, we need to see that everything was part of God's plan. To bring us into his presence. So let's see what that means for us. One of the best studies, I think, and one I'm enjoying, to really see the relationship between the old covenant and the new covenant is the book of Hebrews. It's a great study. It really details Probably more than you might want to get into, but if you've got the, the patience and the time, go through it. But great detail as to exactly how God maneuvered through the Old Covenant into the New Covenant, what it means. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. We're not going to look at it all today. It'd be way too much. We're going to spend some time in, in Hebrews 8. So you can queue up there if you want, or some of the scriptures might be on the screen. But Hebrews 8 is going to be kind of our primary area. area. But through the book of Hebrews, you see this clear trans- transition from the Old Covenant through the Old Covenant, into the New Covenant. And uh, between chapters 1 and 7, there are three crucial facts that have to do with, with Jesus' part in this New Covenant. And it talks about the superiority of Jesus and how Jesus was just light years ahead of anything imaginable. And some of these, for the average Jew, would have been just un- unbelievable you know, it talks about Jesus being superior to the angels. Now, that is really, really big. We don't talk a lot about angels. We should. It's probably to, to my shame that we don't. would be a great study, and perhaps this year we can get into that. But to, to people back in the, in the first century and, and prior, angels were, were huge. It was a big, big deal. It was believed that angels, angels were the only beings that carried your prayers directly to God. And so that's why there were just countless numbers of angels. And when you pray, the angel somehow grabbed hold of that and brought it to God. So no angel, God doesn't hear your prayer. And so angels were just such a vital part of an understanding of of my relationship with God. And so in this first couple of chapters of, of Hebrews, it talks about Jesus being superior to the angels. I mean, I bet that raised a lot of eyebrows. And a lot of people were in shock. How could that possibly be? If the angels carry my prayers to God, what could be more superior to that? But then it goes on to talk about Jesus being superior to Moses. Now, that ruffled a few more feathers and raised a few more eyebrows. Because Moses was God's man. The one that God spoke directly to. God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, gave the law to Moses. It would be hard, if not impossible for any Jew to consider anybody superior to Moses. I mean, it's just, that's unimaginable. But Jesus was. And then he talks about him being superior to Aaron. Aaron was the first high priest. The high priest was the bridge. The the high priest brought the voice of God to the people. Well, Jesus wasn't just the bridge. He was the voice of God. And so superior in all these really important ways. And one of the most important things about this new covenant, and that you see referred to quite a bit as we go through this, or as you go through the book of Hebrews if you do, is that it was better. It was a better covenant, better plan, better promises, better idea, Going to have a better outcome, just better, more than a bridge. It was a direct connection. So look at Hebrews chapter 7 right here. Uh, and then we'll get to 8 here in just a moment. But in chapter 7, verse 18, you get a little bit of a preview. He talks about Melchizedek. Go back, look at that on your own. But it gets a little bit of a, of a preview of, of just what we mean by this is a better covenant. The former regulation, which is that old covenant, is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. That's such an important part of this whole thing—being drawn near to God. The old covenant did not draw you near to God; it made God um, known to you, but there was no none of this sense of nearness. So we have now, and it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, "The Lord has sworn; He will not change His mind. You're a priest forever." Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. We all appreciate better, right? Don't you like it when things are are better? We were traveling back from Georgia on Wednesday night and we visited some friends, Mike and Mary Shapiro, in North Carolina. And so from where they are, the better route, or so we thought, to come back to Connecticut was 95. I despise 95. I, I barely want to take 95 from Bridgeport to Stanford. Forget about, you know, North Carolina to Connecticut. And I'm like, all right. So the GPS says, let's go ahead and give it a shot. So we were sailing along pretty well, you know, everything's fine. I get into Maryland and, you know, it begins to slow down. And I'm seeing all these emergency vehicles first go past me on the southbound side and then eventually passing me on the northbound, which means they're going down, circling and coming up, which meant only one thing. There's something really big up ahead. And so we're plodding along, and praise God, the GPS alerted me that this is not the way to go and alerted me to a better way root, a better way. So we we veered off and I don't even know where we were. We were just following the little arrow, but we we were someplace and eventually we reconnected with 95 again, but at least it was a little bit better. But I appreciated that because you know what? I found a better way. I wasn't stuck. The new covenant is your better way. You're not stuck. You're not stuck. What Jesus brought to the table was a better way. Well, how much better? Why is it better for us? Look over in chapter 8 now. This is my favorite chapter of this whole covenant thing. We're going to break it up into two two parts here. Uh, So beginning of verse 1. Why is it better for us? Now, the main point of what we're saying is this. See, the really cool thing about the book of Hebrews is that it it must have been written by a scholar, of which I am not, but I appreciate things that are written by scholars because it's like going on and on. Then he kind of says, okay, look, what we're really trying to say is this. And he just boils it down, and I always appreciate it when people do that for me. The main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve in a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what's in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. Right, so this was a see to it. He said, make sure that it's done just right. Okay, that's what we just were. I'm sorry, I missed my cue to give you the scripture, but you heard it anyway. Okay, so. When God set up the worship under the Old Covenant, it was very detailed and very specific. Those Ten Commandments, those 613 laws, were all channeled through just a few people. It's like you weren't on your own to just say, I'm going to worship God. It was channeled through only a few people in a very well-defined structure, the tabernacle, the sanctuary. And God gave Moses plans, and he told him exactly how to build it. But it was a copy. It was a shadow of the kingdom of heaven. It wasn't the real thing. And your whole relationship with God depended on, these things and these few people that you were channeling everything through. Now, prior to Jesus, I must have a weak battery, okay. Prior to Jesus, if you wanted a relationship with Jehovah God, that was how you did it. You had no choice, either as a Jew or a convert to Judaism. Either way, these are the rules. The problem was is that things don't last and people can be flawed. So if your whole relationship with God is dependent on on these things that are set in place, these mechanisms set in place, and these few people in the synagogue, in the temple, in the tabernacle that you had to channel through, then if there's a problem with that, then there's a problem with everything. It all falls apart it was time for a change, time for something better time for some time for some new promises. Jesus wasn 't the copy, and Jesus was not the shadow of things to come in the future. Jesus and the church of which we are a part of in the new covenant that 's the real thing in real time. We are in right now what God had. Always wanted from the start, but didn't work out. He had to develop the plan, and, and, and here we are. Now, let's look a little further in verse 6. Okay, there we are. That's really small. If you can't, if you can't read that, just follow along in your Bible. I had to, like, to get it in there. Anyway, but but in fact, so this is verse 6 of Hebrews 8, but in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he's the mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said... Now, again, keep in mind, it wasn't that God was at fault, right? God found fault with the people. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. And with the people of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I'll be their God, they'll be my people. And no longer will they teach their neighbor. Or say to one another, know the Lord, because they'll all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I'll remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Now, we said earlier, and rightfully so, that God did not make a mistake when he created the old covenant. It, the new covenant wasn't some plan B. So where does it fit in? Well, it's interesting because the Hebrew writer quotes Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, which obviously is, is way before Jesus, right? And it, 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 it indicates to us that, that God knew this was coming, that God had this plan all along. So this, this little section of Jeremiah 31 is quoted as the answer as to where it fits in. There are three very distinct characteristics of the new covenant that we clearly only have in Christ. And when we appreciate how important they are and how valuable they are, then I believe it adds a lot of value to our relationship with Christ. This is what God designed from the start. This is the reality. Let me share what they are right now. By the way, we, there, there isn't a separate communion message after this. So if you're wondering you're like, wow, we're, no, you're going to have a communion right after this and, and hopefully it'll all tie in and Make a lot of sense. (laughs) That's the goal anyway. So here's the three things that really pop out to me when I look at this, this new covenant versus old and the things that really Jesus only can bring to the table. The new covenant is written on our hearts and our minds. The old covenant was almost exclusively external. In fact, it was, I think, completely external. The new covenant by design was meant to be internalized. And, you know, when there are things that are internalized, don't they make a lot more sense to you? Do you remember when you were in school and maybe you took certain classes that you, you hated, right? There were certain classes were like, man, why am I even in here? My daughter just said that when we were down in Georgia. I was like, oh, I don't know why I have to take this. You know, there's these certain classes that you take, and you, you just go there because you got to go there, and you take all the notes, and you read all the material, and you, you take the tests, and, but all the, all the data, all the information was just right in your head. But and that for the most part, that's what the old covenant was. It was just all in their heads. It was all that list of do's and don'ts. But the new covenant, the difference is, the beauty is, is that it was meant to be internalized. It goes right into the heart. There were those classes you took in college uh, or in high school or wherever that, man, like, I love this. It went right to your heart. I remember when I was in college, uh, all the music classes were obviously, they were great. That's why I was there. All the other classes of psychology and the, you know the social sciences, like okay, I'll go, but you know I have to. But you know, there's those certain things that just they go right to your heart. They resonate. They connect right away. That's what the new covenant was designed to be: to go right to your heart, to resonate right away, to help you connect with God without any external obligation—not obligations—without um, any external uh, rules or regulations that that have to be abided by. It goes right to the hearts. Meant to be internalized. Picture a young child. A kid needs to know deep inside that they are loved by their parents. And good parents will do anything to ensure that, that young child's well-being. And it builds a really strong sense of security in the relationship. And then when the time comes for discipline, because with any child, Max and Jenny will find this out, it, you know, at some point, you're going to need to discipline that child in, in whatever means you feel is appropriate. But there has to be some sort of, hey, consequences for this behavior. Otherwise, this is going to go bad really quick. So, But when it comes to time for discipline, the child is okay because they feel the love, and they appreciate the correction. They're not threatened by it. And the, when, the, when the world starts pounding on them, they're not flattened because they know they have a safe place At home, even more so with God. When we're secure in our relationship with Christ, we know we are in a safe place. We're at home with God. We can be scared. We can be hurting. We can be frustrated. We can be anxious. We can be sad. We can run the gamut of emotions. But we know we're okay because we're, we're close to God, we're in Christ. I'm so glad that we have the written word just as they did. And we're expected to hold on to the written word just as they were. It's how we learn about God. It's how we learn how to follow God, right? So the word is an amazing thing to have. But you know, what's even more important for us in the new covenant is that it's not written on our hearts. We can walk with that intimate relationship with God. And that's the second thing, that the new covenant goes deeper Because we can now have a depth of intimacy with God that was virtually unknown before Christ. Now, remember Moses? Moses was the one who had face time with God. But even with that, when God approached a certain point, what did Moses have to do? He had to turn his face away because you can't look directly into the face of God. No one could do that and live. Now, that doesn't sound like a very close relationship. And Moses was about as close as you can get to being with God. Picture the people that you love the most. Imagine if you could never see their face. You were forbidden to see their face. I mean, how difficult would that be? Now, this takes on real meaning in our home because we have two granddaughters that we don't see very much, and thank goodness for FaceTime, right? Because this this keeps my wife alive. (laughs) Right. So so this is like life-sustaining. There's food, there's shelter, There's water and there's FaceTime with the granddaughters, okay? So take any one of those far away, and death will come eventually. (laughs) So it's it's needed. So we were down in Georgia, and you know, just having that that one-on-one personal time with the girls was like was amazing. There's nothing takes the place of that level of intimacy of, of being with somebody in person, even just being here. I mean, all those all those months and years that we could only be virtual, right? The moment we were able to come back together again, it's like, oh, nothing takes the place of being in person. You simply cannot replicate emotion and bonding and connection without being there. And so it is with God. You can't have an emotional relationship with God without being close to God. And so this new covenant, it brought about this intimacy with God never, ever experienced before. So much so that God said this in verse 11, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to anyone, know the Lord. Why? Because they'll all know me from the greatest to the least. One of the greatest things about the new covenant is that it levels the playing field with God. We all are on the same field. Why is that important? Because the old covenant didn't have that. There were only a select few that could claim to have any kind of closeness to God and even that was missing. But there was a spiritual hierarchy in the old covenants. That was really clear from the high priests to the priests to the Pharisees to everybody else. But the problem with that is that everybody else was not on the same level as the upper echelon of that hierarchy. The average Jew on the street was despised and looked down upon by the upper echelons of the spiritual hierarchy. They were looked upon as that you're, you're, you're not even close to being a good Jew. And so there was this this enmity, this considerable enmity between those two classes. There was actually very little positive interaction between them, but you know what? The new covenant abolished all of that. It leveled the field. Jesus is the high priest, and we're all the priests. We don't channel to anybody except Jesus. We're all equal. And our connection with God is even better as brothers and sisters because we have access to the same Abba God. Yes. We all can get there. Amen. If you don't have that intimacy, it's on you. It's up to you to develop it. And then lastly, the new covenant means complete forgiveness. So much so that, that God not only forgives but he no longer remembers our sin. He forgets our sin. Could you imagine that? Two of the most powerful human actions are forgiveness and unforgiveness. One destroys a relationship. The other restores it. We've all been sinned against, but it's what we do next that will make or break the relationship. Will I forgive completely and find enough refreshment in my soul to truly, honestly, let go, move on, and rebuild? Or will I hang on to the resentment and the bitterness and let the relationship stay in ruins? It's your choice. And you have to make that choice. In his book, Peacemakers, author Ken Sandy identifies four promises that we will make if we Forgive completely. he says, I will not dwell on this incident. So you will truly wash your hands of it, let it go, and it's done. I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you, which so often we do. We don't really forgive completely sometimes, and there's like this little fragment, waiting for the right trigger. And when that trigger happens, boom, it's right there in the forefront again. But true forgiveness says, no, there's not even going to be a fragment left for me to bring up and and hold against you. I will not talk to others about this incident. Because what does that do? It just perpetuates it. It keeps it going. And I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship So God modeled this for us through Christ, and it's what the cross is all about. Our sin is not only forgiven at the cross, but it's forgotten. Imagine if we did that every time we were sinned against if we fully forgave like that, imagine the intimacy we would have with each other and imagine what our world would look like if we could just do that. Well, it's got to start someplace. I don't know how effectively it's going to start out there, but I think we have probably a little better understanding of how and why this works. It really needs to start here. So we begin with our own relationships and then we say, okay, extending beyond, how am I doing with this? Through Christ, the new covenant connects our hearts with God. We have this intimacy with God. It's an amazing thing. Next week, we're going to take a look at freedom uh, in Christ and and how that comes out of all this. But what we're going to do right now is take our communion together. And hopefully you're beginning to see the progression from the old covenant through the new covenant. And it will make this communion time that we have a little clearer and a little bit more meaningful. And I'm going to close with a section of Hebrews 9. Then we're going to pray, and we're going to take our communion. This is Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. Well, that's to say is not part of this creation. And he did not enter by the means of blood of goats or, or calves, But he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, and those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he's died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it's necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is still living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and together with water, scarlet wool, branches of hyssop, sprinkled the scroll on all the people, and he said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep in the same way. He sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. That was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear to us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood uh, that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he's appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Yes. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for for what we have, for for all that you have created and worked and reworked and I don't know how you, how you do things, whether you fret over things or you sweat over things. or I just know that you love us. You have us so much on your heart, and you've created for us. You've chosen us to be able to live in Christ and to be able to enjoy a direct relationship with you. Father, that we have unfettered access to you. We have limitless access to you, and that could only happen through Christ that we have complete forgiveness of our sins. Not just an acknowledgement that we are sinners, but we have true forgiveness of our sins, and all that through the blood of Christ. So, Father, as we take this communion now, we thank you so much for, for the bread that represents the body, for, for the drink that represents the blood. And I pray that, Father, we take that with a greater sense of appreciation of exactly what we now have in Christ, and that will inspire and motivate us every day. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Kobe, thanks for putting the slide up. I just wanted to remind us all uh, about our contribution and to to please be consistent with our giving. I know we do it all electronically now, and so it's uh, it's something that you maybe you do it today, maybe you do it some other time during the week. But it's really important that we that we continue to sacrifice and we give for the well-being of our church. You know, watching all the the news reports from uh, from Ukraine and seeing the incredible sacrifice. That the, that the Ukrainian people are, are making for their country. I mean, just, you know, civilians being armed and with no prior experience, but they, they need to defend their country and just the incredible sacrifices across the board. And I think what we have here in our church is, is should be and hopefully is just as valuable to us as what a physical nation would be to a people. And that's not at all to take away from from what they feel and believe and hopefully we feel the same way about where we are. But let's remember that we're not citizens of the world. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, okay? That's first and fo- foremost where our... Uh, Allegiances, And so let's make sure that as we're taking care of ourselves in the world, that we're also taking care of our church. So um, thank you so much for your, for your sacrificial giving. And I'm going to say a prayer for our giving right now in case you were about to give. So Father, we love you so much. And we thank you for this church that you've given us. Help us, God, to, to, to value it and to, uh, to really honor it through our sacrifice. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks.